0: From the Ecology Prime Studios, this is Circle for Original Thinking. I am your host... Glenn Welcome to Circle for Original Thinking, America's electronic talking circle for visionary thinkers, an open forum for fresh ideas and timeless wisdom applied to today's political and ecological challenges. Each week we bring together creative thinkers from a variety of different traditions. We ask the hard questions on the important issues of the day. Political polarization, climate change, virulent viruses, and other symptoms of humanity being out of balance with the natural world. Our goal is to recreate a whole and sacred America, a new and improved version of E Pluribus Unum, from the many to the one, and this time not leave anybody out. Join us as we embark on this quest. Since time immemorial, people have been telling stories. Storytelling has served as a way of building coherent, cohesive community. It is also a way to pass down wisdom from earlier generations for the benefit of future generations. The wisdom of storytelling could be applied to today's ecological challenges such as climate change, But this has not occurred often enough. Ever since the invention of the printing press, the written word has threatened, if not extinguished, the voice of oral tradition. Truth-telling, once the function of stories, has been largely usurped by modern science. Oral storytelling has never gone away, of course. It continues to thrive, even as it has shape-shifted into other forms, such as film, theater, dance, hip-hop, and spoken word poetry. When it comes to climate change, there has been a rush to rely on modern science. Science is the accepted means for predicting and controlling the weather. But the discipline of climate science has a very short history. We have been only recording daily temperatures for less than a century and a half. The oral tradition, on the other hand, has been recording changes to the climate for millennia. Virtually all cultures have have stories that date back to the ending of the last age. There's flood stories that date back that far, and some stories date back to the Stone Age. Moreover, stories have long provided a means for living in harmony with all our relations. They teach not only by telling us what to do, but what not to do. We can learn from everyone and every creature, even if the only thing we learn is what is a bad example. During times of crises, the perennial wisdom of storytelling is needed more than ever. How can storytelling augment the work of climate science in understanding what is unfolding today? How can traditional stories provide the larger wisdom we need to reset our imbalance with the natural world? Join us as we explore the continuing relevance of storytelling today with our guest storytellers, Regina Ress. And Valentina Ortiz. And now I want to introduce these two very interesting and multi-talented women. First, Regina. Regina is a law Regina Ress is a longtime resident of the fabled Greenwich Village neighborhood in New York City. And she's an award-winning storyteller, actor, educator, and author who has told stories in English and Spanish in the US, Latin America, and Europe from schools to prisons and parks to homeless shelters, the Lincoln Center, and the White House. We need to get you right there to the White House now. As an educator, she has taught anywhere from kindergartens to universities, daycare centers, nursing homes, and and international storytelling conferences. She is the recipient of the National Storytelling Network's 2003 Oracle Award for Leadership and the 2015 Oracle Award for Excellence. As an actor, Regina has performed in national tours, regional theater, off-Broadway, and the all-star revival of the women on Broadway. She's been nominated for two Carbonell Awards for acting, and her most recent acting role was as Lettuce Dufay in Peter Schaefer's Lettuce and Lovage, a role written for Maggie Smith. She's a regular contributor to the NPR affiliate WFUV with her stories about New York City and her CD, New York and Me, were in a long-term relationship. features stories about New York with accompaniment by musician Michael Moss, and and she won a 2014 Honor Award from the storytelling world. These days, Regina keeps busy uh, teaching storytelling in the classroom and beyond for NYU and produces the long-running series Storytelling at the Provincetown Playhouse in New York City. And she's also on the board of directors The Healing Voices, Percival Stories, where she makes films to raise awareness of domestic violence. And and she's also the VP of the Storytellers of New Mexico. (laughs) That's where I met her, because she has a part-time residence here. So welcome, Regina. And Valentina Ortiz Pandolfi is an award-winning storyteller, a musician and writer, and she's received the Sendonte de Oro Prize for her storytelling and has taught storytelling workshops in many different institutions from universities to rural elementary schools. And she specializes in the creation of personal stories as a reconstruction of individual and community history. That's similar to what we did last week with David Bogie and Oscar Edwards. So um, I, I want you to hear that show sometime. But anyway, she began her career as a in, as a theater actress in the 70s and from 1980 through 1992, she worked in the underground Farabundo Marti radio station of the Salvadoran FMLN guerrilla movement. And from 1993 on, she's been a percussionist in different bands and orchestras playing tropical swing music and also in Afro-Cuban and Mexican traditional ensembles. She's written and performed the play Vigo la Tortuga with the troupe La Fabrica and she regularly produces her own shows that combine stories, music, and movement in Mexico and also in international festivals around the world in Singapore, Hong Kong, El Salvador, Colombia, Ecuador, and, yeah, and in the U.S. too. She has produced three records with her original stories and music, Earth Stories, Words of the Living River, and 100% Sochi All. (laughs) <laughs> and has also published several storybooks, including Taming History, a story written about the Masahua indigenous women of Santa Marta del Sur. She is the general director of the nonprofit association Sazaniri, Cuentos AC, organizing art workshops and creative collaborative projects. And she's just finished a video recording she's excited about, about a community project, Voices of the River, Um, which she did in the small Mexican village of La Huacana, which is a community reflection about water management. I think we'll hear more about that today. So welcome. Welcome, Regina. Welcome, Valentina. How are you?
1: fine (laughs) we did thank you
0: (laughs) awesome awesome well well you know the first place i want to go to here i mean you know i really really believe in 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 storytelling i i i I, and i i love you both and I, i i'm so glad to have you on the show because frankly we need we need the wisdom that you're carrying the wisdom the stories that you're bringing forth because you know uh uh these days we just do rely too much on climate science i'm not saying that that's not something we need to do we need to do that but 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 there's something about uh, sometimes uh climate science uh, uh is teaching people in ways that it's hard for them to understand, frankly, you know. I mean and, and in that way it can kind of fall on deaf ears. I mean if, you know, the um and 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 it it's sometimes uh um People have not responded appropriately, at least the way the scientists want them to. You know, I mean, scientists, they rely on things like carbon dating to try to find out the history. And for those that don't know what carbon dating is, you know, that's what we used to use before computer dating. No, no, seriously. No, anyway, it's um, in short, we have a climate communication process pr- crisis. As Jeff Biggers has said. So I really want to ask you now, and, and before I ask you a question, I also want to open the door like Leslie Mormon Silko's Aunt Susie used to do, and let's let the ancestors in to join us here today and bring their wisdom. And I want to ask you, how can storytelling get through to people in a way that scientific data may not? And what is it about storytelling that can galvanize attention and move people into action? So... If I may? Yes, Valentina, go.
2: <laughs> it's just, I'm, as I was telling you, I'm fresh. I arrived five days ago from this little village, still have to go back. And once again, the process was confirmed. I've been doing it for 12 years now. And the secret for me with storytelling and how to get through to people through storytelling is about listening. So I, with my projects, I have to be in the community for a certain time and listen to what they are interested in and what they are worried about. Even though I have the preconceived idea of, okay, I have to work about the lack of water and, and deforestation, but it won't work if I don't listen to them. And here, um, it's working. It's amazing. It was very hard because of COVID, but they, they, their relationship with the river, the modern people, is because they can't swim in it, which is very frivolous. But that's the path I took. And we started talking about how, what can we do to be able to swim in the river again, even though they cannot plant anymore because they lack water, but for some reason, they do not associate the river with that. And then I kept listening to them and suddenly it became a project about trees Mm -hmm. because in that very particular area, deforestation because of um, they need more land to plant avocados for the US right um, deforestation is so massive that that is why the the river is drying
1: so valentina we haven't said that you are sitting in Mexico and working oh, in yes. Mexico i think that is pertinent <laughs> <laughs> okay yes hello from mexico yeah but um so
2: now that we've we're coming to the end of the project People are starting to take it over. I made the stories after listening to what the people said to me and where their interests were, and now people are reacting. And just yesterday, it's the fourth song that people in the village have written. They don't relate that much to stories because it's not something that is very vivid for them. But from the stories that I created listening to them, now they are making songs about the issue, about the river, And we've talked so much about trees and they have connected to the tree issue and the tree issue is completely, totally related to the water issue. So Mm -hmm. I think the secret of stories is to listen to the people and to not be, um, not think that we know better, even if we are carrying very ancient stories. um, The thing that communication is a two way thing. So. I think my job as a storyteller is to listen and then put to the service of the community whatever um how do you say the, the knowledge I have but just to make it better for them so they because I leave but they stay and then they will reproduce what in whatever way they want what I have shared
0: Beautiful. And Regina has, how can storytelling get through to people in a way that maybe scientific data does not? And what is it about storytelling that can galvanize attention and move people into action?
1: Well, to, to, to come on the other side of what Valentina has been saying, and what Valentina has been saying is critical, critical, and um, is, is the story and the power of the story in and of itself, Um We are we are story. We are we're hardwired for story. We listen to story, and parts of our brain lights up. And this is all new information that scientists have been studying. What's the power of story? Um, When there is a part of a story that touches us with fear, we're flooded with uh, certain. Enzymes, when a part of a story touches us with love, our hearts expand, and we have this other... A uh, chemical that floods our bodies. I was talking to somebody yesterday. She uh, she works with traumatized children. She said the scientists are saying when you are uh, go through a really critical and traumatic thing, like even if you just wake up in the morning as a child and you hear screaming and yelling from your parents in the house, twenty three different chemicals flood your body, and it takes ninety minutes for those to leave. When we we hear stories, we respond the same way as when we. Uh, experience something alive, and it's very different from seeing it on the screen or, or, or uh, even on the stage. When you listen to a story, you experience it, and you are participating in the story, and it's contextualizing the information of the story. So, great story, great teachers. Uh, if you think of Buddha, if you think of Jesus, if you think of any really great. Uh, rabbi or preacher, they do it with glory because stories touch us in ways that facts do not. So scientific facts, we might go, oh wow, but we're not going to remember them. But when we hear a story, it viscerally impacts us and we take it in in a whole other way. So this is not, this is the other side of the listening is that in the listening, we, uh, you know, if we hear a story, we feel that story. And mm. so, and a lot of this information uh, actually came from um, DARPA, the Defense Department Advanced Research People. Oh. Time, and I've been to a number of conferences where they talked about this. They were trying to figure out why the Taliban were so successful. This is years ago now in the history of all this. And they came up with the, the answer after much time and money spent that the Taliban had a better story than we did. And so then they got together a, 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 a group to study w- what that is about story that makes it so uh, so important. And, uh, and they had no storytellers on that committee, of course. And so somebody who was a, had been doing storytelling with NASA actually got himself on the committee. And so with all the the electrodes on the brain, they were studying. So, yes, when fight fight or flight comes up, that part of the storyteller's brain lights up. That part of the listener's brain lights up as well. And so there's been a lot of study on it. Mm -hmm. But we who have been working with story, we know this. We knew this anyway, you know, and and so now they've proved it.
0: <laughs> mm. Yes, that's that, that that sounds like a story that Leroy Little Bear told me about that uh the, the scientists doing a study up in Saint James Bay and they uh when they were uh, uh they were not allowed to to do uh I think it was they were going to be drilling or something, but they weren't allowed to do it in environmentally sensitive areas. So the and the elders told them that that uh, that particular river and the where the rapids were was the spawning ground, and they they the scientists scoffed. You know, they said, "Oh, it's a, it's got the rapids; it can't be a spawning ground." You know, but then they they dragged out their their scientific equipment and they and they measured and measured and they found out that this was uh a spawning ground and then they said aha and one elder says to the other now it's proven you know yeah. <laughs> you know it it, it it yeah it's it's a uh, uh, well, it's true. Know. And I also want to mention that you're, you know, we're doing this show on September 11th. And I know that Re- and Re- we mentioned uh, Valentina's calling in from Mexico. Uh, and Regina, you're not in New York right now, but you were in New York, I think, on September 11th, 2001. And so that's a, that's and you've told a lot of stories about that. So if there's something you want to say about about this day uh, feel free to. Um, it's, well, go ahead.
1: No, I, I, I stood in, in my window and watched it. The first plane flew out over my building. I was a mile and a half north. I was fortunate and unfortunate. So here's the story. I was uh, fortunate enough not to be down there. Thank God. Uh, I was not in the center of that disaster. I was on the edge of that disaster, however, in lockdown. Uh, and my neighborhood was where all of the rescue uh, and recovery was launched from. So I therefore was able to, almost immediately, once I, I secured my own base, um, uh, I got out on the streets and there were thousands of people who poured out to help instantly, which uh, I talk about a lot in stories that we all can do something, even if it's just At the moment, let's say, wear your mask, please. Mm. Um, Everyone can do something. But I was part of that response. And people would call me or email me from around the world starting that day and afterward and say to me, you're so lucky you're there. You can do something. We feel so helpless. We can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I started organizing things. But, yes, I was there, and this was a day. But this was a day that was both that horror show and then the response. And I think a lot of the old stories that we tell uh, in terms of fairy tales and folk tales and the mythologies hint at or directly speak to or speak to indirectly, which is really excellent, The fact that there have been problems, both man-made and ecological, Mm -hmm. forever. And that each one doing something or the community coming together, or like what Valentina is doing, the community figuring out what it needs to do, wants to do, needs to do, and can do. Uh, That's happened before, or we wouldn't be sitting here. And we may be on a a huge edge of things right now with the climate catastrophe. But it's happened before. If you look at... Uh, and perhaps I don't know, Valentina. You have this at yes. your fingertips, but you know, in in the Toltec Aztec mythology, when the sky falls down, um, my understand in in the flood. It's one of the flood stories that's all over the world. The flood story that that the scientists are now looking at the old myths to see. Oh, there might be hints here in these stories of things that have happened before.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And Valentina, if you do have a story that that uh, you want to tell right now about this this time that you feel is appropriate, I I want to in, invite you to do so.
2: Okay. Wow, <laughs> that was a change. Okay. I just wanted to add to that. Sure. That Please add. Um, with the earthquakes, the terrible earthquakes that have happened twice in mexico well that have hit Mexico City very strongly it 's amazing how people organize and are the first ones there trying to get people out of the rubbles and feeding the workers that are on the rubbles and For the first like five days, people will really, really well organize really well and do what is needed and then the army and the government start coming in and pushing the people aside so it's Mm. so important that we remember that as communities we can solve things and that it is the higher powers that are in government and in that have the weapons that are not interested that we do that and especially in mexico now there's a big push that we do not Tie up as communities anymore. And I know in the US with the Afro-American people, with the indigenous people, it's such a, such a need of those in power to, to make us think that we do not belong together. And I just wanted to add that. Thank you. (laughs) So you, you want a story about the sky falling down?
0: Okay. Yes. Sounds good. It sounds very appropriate.
1: Well, you know, and, and it, what's going on with the weather right now, the sky is falling, the wind is blowing, the fires are raging, the drought is here. So I know that in those old stories it hints of some of this, and you might, I just thought you might have one. Oh, yeah. Okay. Actually, I have one that is about holding the sky
2: up. Ooh, and who does that? And this is completely related to climate change because it's a story that I dedicate to a man called Samir Flores who was a community organizer in the state of Morelos and um, he was murdered two years ago because they have, they still have a very strong resistance movement against a thermal electric well, um plant electric plant that it has been built now and has is functioning and is destroying the river that feeds three different states of Mexico. Mm. Um so this is the story about the holders of the sky. It is based on the Maya tradition. Mm. No, no, actually no. No. It is based on a story written by the Zapatista subcomandante Marcos. <laughs> mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. Chiapas okay. the movement yes. is from Chiapas and it says like this So hard to make the world. And they were perfectionists. I mean, every single flower had to be different. Cada mariposa, every butterfly, had to be a different size, different combination of colors. The plants were all different sizes. I mean, they really did their job much better than what was expected from them. And they sort of got tired after six days. And just like in other beliefs on the seventh day, they were very tired. But they still had to do one thing. They still had to make something to cover what they had created. They had to make the sky. And they grabbed what little strength was left, and they started to work. Basically what they did is they just put a big tarp over the world and the tarp was soggy, as tarps are. And in those bags that were formed, shaped on the top of the tarp, well, there were all the bad things. There was hunger, there was anger, there was envy, and the world was full of wars and things were not good. Things were so bad that Mother Earth went up to the gods and said, I am angry If things don't get better I am leaving They didn't want that They had just made her Recently they did not want her to leave So they chose four gods to come down Down to the earth And they would have to hold up the sky one on each corner and they stretched that sky, that tarp. And it was so nice. It was so nice that on top of the tarp, dreams could run. Beautiful words, love could come running from one side to the other. And there were the gods holding that tarp, really stretching it. But even gods get tired. And so once in a while one of the gods would start falling asleep and the tarp would get soggy again. And then there would be fighting and there would be all this, these terrible things like explosions, like, well, like fire, volcanoes killing people. Oh, bad. So then they would wake the other one up. And then the tarp would be nice and stretched again. But that was not working. I mean, things were really complicated. So the gods from above came down and they gave to the four sostenedores del cielo, those who supported the sky, they gave them a cunche shell. And every time they would see one of the other gods starting to fall asleep and the tarp gets soggy, then they would play the cunche and it worked perfectly I mean the, the, the God would wake up and stretch that tarp and it was actually beautiful to hear all those sounds and as it is in nature one thing leads to another and through the sound of the cunchell were born the words and words you see they don't walk in a straight path of course not they come from a shell. they walk It twirls, and all of that is going on. And yes, humans existed, and humans are very curious. So they started to come up near where that sound came. And a few, very few of those humans, the most courageous ones, they learned to blow on the shell. And as things went on and the years passed and we forgot about those gods that are holding up the sky, the humans, the few that learned to blow the shell, became very important because they are the ones that wake us up. They are the ones that remind us that we have to take care so the war, so the envy, so the hunger does not come back. And I was very fortunate to have... Chair, to have built a beautiful building with one of those cunt shell blowers and his name was Samir Flores Samir Flores is so important he was the one that led a small community together and have their own school because the government refused to give them their school he had his radio station that every morning woke up the small community yes, hmm. Samir Flores And the government was not happy when that community organized others and went to tell the government they did not want the thermoelectric plant that was going to poison the river that has fed their lands forever. That that thermoelectric plant was going to burn all the living beings in that river. And they stood up strong. They won. They even won in the, the, with the, with, in, in La Corte with the judges. But one day, Samir asked his people to come, and they talked, and then he said, My heart has spoken. I know I am leaving soon, but you must promise, you must promise that each one of you will be sh- make sure that you will keep blowing the cut shell. And yes, that morning two years ago, in September, just a few days from today, Samir Flores was shot right outside the door of his house at 5 a.m. Those men arrived, and he was shot one day after he spoke out in front of national television and directly spoke to the president, Lopez Obrador, saying, you must listen to us, the communities that live on the land and that feed Mexico. Mm -hmm. And since then... The few of us keep, are very stubborn and we keep blowing the cunt shell like this. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Wow, that's powerful.
1: I'm I'm holding up. (laughs) Yeah. that I, I got in San Francisco.
0: I could, I could tell that the story is pretty deep meaning to you, uh Valentina, so it's something that you've that you know these people in the story. Brilliant. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know them. <laughs> you work with them. Yeah. Yeah.
2: We had a story project um they they lost uh, they, it's a they lost, but In Morelos, the the last um, earthquake in 2019, Morelos is not an earthquake region usually. And now it was hit terribly, and many, many homes were fallen. And also the army came in and destroyed the homes that hadn't um, fallen. And um, they lost their homes. And as a community effort, we, we were able to help and we built a community center we did have some support from canada from canadian people which was great mm-hmm. but the children from the from the local um, music band they were the most active in building their own community center mm-hmm. and so yes when samir was killed it was very strong two other people have been Also after that, Mexico is one of the places where most community leaders that are related to issues with the land are the one as one of the places where most, most of these leaders have been killed.
0: Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for bringing that story, you know, you know. I never know what's going to happen, you know, when we start these podcasts, but it's very interesting that, uh, uh, what's unfolding here. And you're both speaking stories of, uh, community building. And they're, they're not stories from antiquity, like, You know, maybe I framed this discussion, but that's okay. That's okay. They 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 could be, um, and because this it's always been the same thing, right? People have had to gather together in community. Um, I wanted to ask Regina if you could tell us tell us a story about um, maybe that story of uh, from Hawaii. Yeah, Uh, let me just
1: tell you a really Uh, quick quick story. uh, Because it just follows right up. So I think an a Buddhist story, there are many versions of that. Uh, There was a little bird lying on her back with her feet up in the sky, and an elephant came along and and laughed and said, What are you doing? And she said, I've heard that the sky is going to fall today, so I'm, I'm prepared to keep it up. And the elephant laughed at her and said, Are you out of your mind? You know, you're this tiny little bird. What do you think you're doing? You know, you think that your two little feet can hold up the sky? And she said, Well i don't know that i can hold up the whole sky a whole sky but i'm holding up my part i'm doing what i can i mm. uh, story there are a lot of stories like that mm. uh, that we all have to come together to do what we can Well, mm. uh, this story that uh that, that valentina the story that you reminded me of with the the uh, electric the electric company and the, the water supply um Uh, This is is from Hawaii, I used to spend a lot of time on the Big Island back in the 1970s and the 1980s, the early 80s. And uh, if you don't know anything about the Big Island, Hawaii, it's made of five volcanoes. And so there's um, Kohala in the north, Huala Lai in the west, there's Mauna Kea, which means white mountain, because it's usually covered with snow. It's 14,000 feet. Mauna Loa, which means long mountain, which is also just uh, about 14,000 feet. But um, then there's Kilauea, which is the spreading one, the spreading one, and that is the most active. It's 4,000 feet. When I was there in the 70s, it was one of the most active volcanoes in the world. But it was also, for the Hawaiians, the most sacred place because it is the home of the goddess Pele. And uh, the goddess Pele, who made her way up from uh, Kahiki, she did or didn't steal her brother's canoe. And there are many, 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 many stories about the great goddess Pele. And she is the goddess of fire and violence. She's the goddess of the volcanoes. She is the goddess of dance. So many of the dances are two pele and she lives in Halema'uma'u, which is a pit in the center of the caldera of Tilawaea the spreading one volcano the first time and you well you have to be very aware of pele and when you go there and that you will be told you must respect pele do not disrespect her and sometimes she shows up and there are many stories about her showing up, uh, sometimes as a young, beautiful woman, but most often as an old woman with a little white dog. So, for instance, if you are driving and there's an old woman trying to get a ride, you'd best give her a ride, because if that's Pele, and it probably is, the next time she sends lava out, if you give her the ride, the lava will go around your land, <laughs> Mm-hmm. It will split and go around your land and then come back together as a lava flow. Later, those saved places are called kipukas, and there's a, a beautiful one at the summit of Kilauea. Um, the summit of Kilauea is a national park. It also had um, a hotel, and it's got a volcano observatory on it. This Kilauea. So Pele, you you respect and. It is wise to respect the local deities. It is always wise to honor and respect our planet. So here we're in trouble because somehow we've gotten away from that knowledge. So 1977 is the first time I went to the island, and I was immediately taken up to Ma'u, where you can drive. There's a a parking lot you could drive up. It was a drive-in volcano. They used to joke about it. But Halema'uma'u is where it's the pit in the middle of the caldera, and it's where Pele lives. So we got out and I looked around. We're in a parking lot. We go to a fence. We we'll walk over the fence. We're looking at the pit. There are a lot of tourists. There are tour buses. People get off the buses, take a photograph, get on the bus and leave. And I thought, I don't think this is the the correct way to introduce myself to Pele if I want to spend time on this island. I seriously want to be uh, respectful. So uh, a week or so later, I went by myself over on the other side of the caldera, which is about two miles across, and um, went to the park headquarters and then found my way down a path. Now, that side of the volcano on the island is the wet side of the island. It's the windward side. So the rain comes and it stops because the three volcanoes, Kilauea, but mostly Mauna Loa and, and Mauna Kea, they stop, they stop those clouds. And so you've got this very lush one, the east, the eastern side of that island and then the western side is the dry side. So as I went down into the caldera, I went through a forest of ferns that were 10 foot high ferns. I mean, luscious green loving ferns. And I got down to the caldera and stopped because I was facing two miles of absolute nothing but lava flow, black and red and gray and shot through with sulfur yellow. And it took me 10 minutes to walk out on that lava flow, but I did. And I started and I walked across seeing so many just open space, devastation beauty. It's hard to explain, but it is so beautiful. And yet these are lava flows, right? And then there are um, things that, that are cracks in the earth with steam coming up. They're called steam vents. And so these cracks go all the way down to where the heat of that volcano is causing The steam somehow it mixes with the the water in the air and causes steam to come up. And in those uh, little steam vents, you'll see ferns beginning to grow, little green ferns. In the middle, in the middle of the caldera, in the middle of the lava flows, there'll be these little places where life is beginning to start again. It's a totally alive devastation, Mm -hmm. and you will pass. Mounds or little volcanoes called uh, pueblos, little cinder cones, where at some point there would have been an eruption, a small one. So I walked across that caldera, and I got to the place with the parking lot and the tourists. And I came staggering out of the caldera, you know, and I had around my neck red flower lei, and I threw the lei into the pit. Thank you, Pele. And then I had with me her favorite libation which is gin. Everyone, all the Hawaiians said she loved gin. So I had a little bottle of gin, and I threw it into Pele. And I thanked her for allowing me to be on the island. So I, I, I was on that island a lot for the next five, six years. And I went over that volcano often because between where I was living and the little town of Hilo, the great city of Hilo with 35,000 people in it, where I had to do my shopping. I always had to drive up that volcano, go across that summit and down into Gila. And I went over to the volcano often and walked a lot of the trails. And I loved Kilauea. And Kilauea is Pele and Pele is a creator and a destroyer. She creates new land when she sends out lava. Hmm. It not only lava's over, what land is there? If it gets to the sea, that liquid fire, liquid fire that is lava goes in the, uh, that cold Pacific and turns into black sand. Mm. And if there's uh, obsidian in that particular flow, there'll be, there are green sand flecks or there's a whole green sand beach we call. And if it's spun, that's glass coming up out of that volcano. And if it's kind of very fine, they call it Pele's hair. So, in 1982, in the fall, it was announced by the electric company in Hilo, that great city with its 35,000 people, that uh, they wanted to put geothermal wells over 500 geothermal wells, I think it was over 600, I don't remember, but certainly over 500, geothermal wells into the flanks of Kilauea Volcano, one of the most, if not the most, active volcano in the world, and the home of Pele. The electric company Helco, Kilo Electric, Helco, great name for an electric company, Uh, and it was not for electricity for that island, it was for Honolulu on the island of Oahu. So they had to have their requisite meetings to get approval. Environmental impact meetings, they're called. So the Hawaiians, some of the elders, uh, came and spoke about the sacred nature of the aina, the land. It was very, very sacred to any indigenous group. The Hawaiians, and at that moment, the Hawaiian culture, there was a lot of um, activity around bringing back the pride of Hawaiian culture, so the aina was sacred, and you, did, you don't, you don't mess with the aina, the land. And this particular piece of real estate happened to belong to Pele. She lived there, lives there. And so the uh, officials said, well, that's nice, go away. So then the Haoles, the uh, what we would call here Anglos in, in New Mexico, Um, The other folks, other than the Hawaiians, let's just say, came in. A lot of them talked about the fragility of the ecosystem, those fern forests, for example, which is where they were going to put those wells. And they were dismissed as, I quote, hippie dope growers and told to go away. Mm. And Helco said, no, we're putting in the... The geothermal wells, you know, which is typical, the government doesn't listen, but they, they legally had to have the meetings. That was in the fall of 1982. In January of 1983, Kilauea volcano began to erupt, huge eruptions, massive eruptions. A whole new mountain in the middle of that mountain is called Pu'u'o'o was the first big one. She erupted. Pele did, Gaia did, however you want to speak of this, she erupted, and she has not stopped erupting since then. She took out famous tourist places, the Black Sand Beach and Kalapana, uh, Queen's Bath, which was something that the the ancient Hawaiians had used and I had been in, Uh, all of that... Down the slopes, there are miles of massive black sand beaches that used to be cliffs. She took it out, and she is still doing that. And they didn't get their five hundred geothermal wells. at some point they put some in. I'm not sure how many, not many. they they were taken out. they're They're gone. They didn't get it. Yeah. It's really wise to pay attention to the earth the deities of the earth the local gods and goddesses because if we do not she is going to kick us off the planet
0: thank you for for that <laughs> admonition which is true <laughs> um, sneeze us off you know in the in, in the remaining time we have which is about 10, ten minutes I mean I, I want to direct the conversation to uh uh climate change in a direct way um, because um, a lot of people feel that now um, the warnings that were given about climate change were uh were not heeded um, and now we're in the age of consequences so so uh uh the earth is is uh um, rebalancing as she always does but in a way that is um, powerful and frightening to some people, so I want to ask you both with your with your knowledge and wisdom of story and the way that you 've re- interacted with community i mean how do you how do you guide people? How do you help people now who are at a loss emotionally for you know what is happening now? I mean right now in the entire west coast of the United States from California to Oregon to Washington. There are fires raging. I mean, there, one time there were 360 fires in California at the same time. And they have the largest fire they've ever heard of have right now. And it wasn't even in the heart of their fire season yet. So how do we, how can you speak to the, these people to, uh, what is the appropriate thing to say? to reach them and comfort them at this time for both of you.
2: My experience on the field, um, I've worked with indigenous community migrants that are really in very hard conditions in Mexico City, um, very discriminated upon, and I've worked with sex workers that are um, in situation living on the streets, and, and I always come to the same conclusion that uh, for me a healing story, which is now a coined term, for me a healing story is a story that leaves space for the person to do something, just like the little bird and what I just lived in, in on um, the process I just lived in La Huacana, confirmed this. Um, you couldn't really do anything about the river being dirty and losing their waters. You know, you can pick up a few garbage, but it's not even full of garbage. It's really not, it doesn't, it's not bad. But what we've found is what you can do is take care of one tree. Mm-hmm. Plant one tree outside your house. Stop cutting the leaves off the, the tree in front of you. Or I mean, if you get ambitious, you can plant a whole forest, but so for me, healing stories is that, is to find a way to, come. the only comfort we can give is open the door and say, you can do something, even if it seems, because, and, and people just told me this two, three weeks ago, they say, oh, the biologists come and talk to us about climate change. And you know, we just turned them off. What can we do about what's happening in California? And so I became sort of a translator of what the biologist said to the the, the us simple people. And um, so for me, it's it's a word hope, and an action would be the one the correct ones for me.
0: Hmm. Thank you. And Regina.
1: Well, I, a week ago I told a story um, by Hans Christian Andersen for the uh, Hans Christian cool. Andersen series uh, when it comes out in New York all summer. Uh, but you know I'm not going to tell the story but basically it is a tyrant who is who is uh, conquering the world nothing can stop him and uh, he wants to put his, his his likeness in the churches and they say we can't do that God's greater he says I will conquer God and he tries and he fails and the ultimate way that he fails is God sends out a swarm of gnats tiny tiny noceums gnats mm-hmm. and He pulls his sword out and tries to get the gnats. Well, you can't. So he puts carpets and wraps himself up, but one gnat, one gnat gets in that carpet, gets in, finds its way around, goes in his ear and stings him. And it just poisons his brain and he flings off the carpets and his clothing and the soldiers he's gathered to go blast into heaven laugh at him because he was going to conquer God, but he's conquered by a single gnat. So the power of individual action, it's the same thing, plant the tree, hold—you know do what you can, like the little bird. There's a very famous uh, story from South Asia, India, of the great forest fire, and there's a little tiny bird who sees it, and in her beak, one drop at a time, starts bringing water to drop on the forest fire. And the gods see her and take pity and cause great rain, which then um, extinguishes the fire. But it was the fact that that little tiny, tiny bird had the courage and the determination to try to stop it that caused the community of gods or the whole community then to get in there and do what you can so it it is do what you can Mm. and i witnessed it with 9 11 that everybody was out on the street and there's a beautiful essay about how uh, disasters are one big thing but then there's a hundred 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 thousand little acts of gold that come in, that counterbalance that one big disaster. And each one of us is responsible. And there are a lot of stories about individual action, and that is possible. And when I told children after 9-11, I was with middle school a month later, and they were still, of course, upset we were over. And I said, look, things like this have gone on for millennia. The good guys and the bad guys. It's always a fight. If the bad guys were going to win, we wouldn't still be here. And we are. So roll up your sleeves and do what you can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm sure both of you uh, know a lot of stories about the trickster, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, how uh, it doesn't, you know, sometimes the, the most disruptive forces end up renewing um and uh, uh so um, valentina i know that you have a project that's near and dear to your heart so i want to give you a, a moment to speak about that uh, the project that you're currently Working on with the uh, community La Huacana um, on the uh, voices of the river project and and if they and if you want to let people know how they can uh, help on that, uh, you give out a website and then i 'm going <laughs> to go back to Regina for a closing remark. Go ahead
2: okay um, I think i 've spoken quite a bit now, but um we are working in this little small town. It's in a one of the areas of Michoacán, which is um, you could say we're at st- in a state of war, but you yeah, know you get used to things and um, well, just say it's been amazing what what has been accomplished. We are doing it with a little bit of funds from from a, a state state support. Very little. And soon we had, because of COVID, um, things change. We usually do community work um, within the community, for the community, and hopefully even the community will tell the stories in the show. But this, with COVID, um, it was not allowed for us to do the shows. I guess it was a good idea not to do them. Mm -hmm. So we recorded them. But the fact of recording them is going to allow us to show it to many, many other places, and I'm very excited about that side of the outcome. And also, we recorded them on the on a volcano. There's a inland volcano that appeared 200 years ago, and I had the fortune of seeing these amazing places. And we recorded the the, the stories on the volcano, on the river, next to the river, with the community. So it was very exciting and. Um, we will have a, a website on my website, which is um, valentinastoryteller.com. Okay. We will post the place where you can find find one will be in English and the other, well, the four of them will be in Spanish. And um, well, just I would like to say thank you to for this opportunity to to be here and share and that old stories. Yes, the wisdom is in the old stories but as storytellers we make the old new, we make yeah. it every day so people can can relate to it and um oral tradition is alive and so trying to make it stay old has not worked for me
0: no that's good no that's uh, i i'm I'm right with you that's uh, that's the true meaning of a original i mean it's both old and new the story
2: new. i told is old but it becomes new
0: and oh, i see you okay well that's good that's good so valentina will be the place they can go to but right now it's not up on about yeah. that okay but it will be up shortly. Um, but And Regina, uh, how can people reach you to stay in touch with the work that you're doing?
1: Well, ReginaRest.com. Um, I have a new website.
0: Thank you. Two very gifted storytellers and, and thank you so much for this, this program. The stories were, you know, that you told were a little different than maybe that I expected. But that only goes to show, as Valentina said, that, you know, it's, you can't easily separate the old from the new or the political from the ecological. It's all interconnected. Original instructions ultimately They're about what's needed at this time for the planet to renew. And the message that came through this show loud and clear is to, is to do your part. You know, be that little bird that holds up its piece of the sky. Resolve to be a team player and help your community. So, thank you for that. That's a very, very valuable message on this day. Um, I want to invite uh, Valentina to say a, a, a closing prayer, um, and and then we're, we're we're going to have to sign off, unfortunately, <laughs> because. Of, but please, Valentina. And thank you so much for both being here.
2: Since we spoke so much about fire, um, shaggy in the, in the Nyato language, um, I would like to, I would like to make a, a small prayer for water as water can combine with the fire and make things better. We iti tata, we iti nana, ikati atu tu, amoka naki a ti moteki pa, chau, amoka naki a wili. Pika inonit cake weiti tata weiti nana weiti tata weiti nana
0: beautiful thank, thank you. you thank you so much This program is made possible in part by Select Books, Waterside Publications, Bizgenics, and the College Prime Media Channel. Native flute music by Orlando Secatero from the Pathways CD. Liberty Song by artist Ron Crowder, written by Ron Crowder, Jim Casey, and Danny Casey. Post-production editing by Scout Media Strategies. The Circle for Original Thinking is a grassroots think tank whose mission is to seek out the deep origins of temporary thought in order to remember and restore art-centered wisdom for humanity and all our religions on Earth. For more information or to volunteer to help produce this podcast, go to originalthinking.us. Or originalpolitics.us, and you can also find and purchase my books, Original Thinking and Original Politics there. Thank you very much, Valentina. and thank you, Regina. Thank you for listening. And until next week, many blessings of good health and well-being to all. Thank you so much. People
2: across this land are ready to march and shout.